0: I would invite you to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John, John chapter 19. That's where we will land today. Uh, For our scripture reading today, today we're John chapter 19. We'll be actually begin in verse 16, and we'll read to verse 37. It's a little bit longer portion of scripture, so I would encourage you to hang in there with me. But today begins the crucifixion story. Today is Palm Sunday. We. We talked about that five years ago in the Gospel of John. If you've been here, um, I was a little younger back when we did that story. Uh, but today we're doing the crucifixion. If you remember, Pilate capitulates. He he just gives in to the demands of the crowds. In John chapter 19, verse 15, he hands Jesus over to be crucified, despite Jesus being innocent. And then that is where we begin our story today. And this is what it says: So the so he then Pilate he Pilate then handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. And they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, Therefore many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was was crucified was near the city. And it was written in, notice this part, Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. Why? So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews, and Pilate in his cynicism answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts. A part to every soldier and also the tunic, the very inside garment. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing at the cross, by the cross of Jesus, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw, then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, who is that? That is John. So he said to his mother, Jesus said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, John, behold your mother. And then from that hour, the disciple took her into her own household. And then after this, knowing, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour vinegar and sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop. Why is that significant? I'll talk about that. And brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, to tell us I... And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with Jesus. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came forth. And he, was, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may also believe. Does that sound familiar? If it doesn't, man, you haven't been here for four years. Okay. For these things, sorry, I will actually finish the Gospel John in two years, believe it or not. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of his shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. That says the Lord, amen. Uh, today, I'd like to talk to you about the cross, but specifically, I'd like to talk to you about rejoicing in the cross. Rejoicing in the cross. As it says in Hebrews chapter 12... It says this of Jesus, that Jesus, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. How, how could Jesus look at something that is an implement of torture and pain and look at the cross as an object to rejoice in? How, could, how did he rejoice in the cross? Therefore, how do we then rejoice in the cross? You know, for most of us, the cross, the story that we're going to go unpack today is very familiar. It's it's kind of like that uh, loaf of bread that was on the counter the night before. It's a little stale and dusty, but it's a story. The crucifixion, the cross, is a story that, that we've heard over and over and over again. But I want to turn that stale story into bread pudding. I want to turn it from a stagnant pool into rivers of life that it is. Today, let's dust off the cross. Let's dust off the story and let us rejoice as Christ did in it. But before we get too far in, I want you to think about a time where you received a surprise gift. A a time where you received a gift that you weren't expecting, that you were maybe giddy, that you were surprised and excited to receive. Uh, maybe your spouse surprised you with a car for Christmas. Maybe your parents surprised you with airline tickets, or maybe a friend threw you a surprise birthday party. Okay, so what's the moment like where you receive something you weren't expecting? What's that moment like? You're you're excited. You're you're amped. We would say you're you're pumped. I don't know if that's even a word people use anymore. Okay, that was from the nineteen two thousands. Anyways, that's when I grew up. Um, what is that moment like? When you receive a gift that you weren't expecting And then what happens over time What happens a week later, a month later That excitement slowly wanes That's the story of the cross Unfortunately I think about myself There was this week a Facebook feed Whatever that is Popped up on my Facebook page And it was a memory that I had of about 10 years ago My wife Decided to do something very special for my birthday. She saved uh, all our money because we were seminary students at the time. We ate ramen noodles and ate peanut butter sandwiches at Luke's pantry. Can anybody relate to that? Okay. We were poor. Okay, that's what we say. I was, I was broke, but my wife saved her money and she surprised me on my birthday with Dallas Maverick tickets. You know, the NBA basketball team. I always wanted to go to every major sporting event, you know, to an NBA game, a Major League Baseball game, an NFL game. And she, on that birthday, completely surprised me. We had great seats. And she saved our money because, like I said, we were in seminary and we had bills to pay, okay? But then what, is that? what happened over time? It was this great time that I was excited. We had great seats. It was, it was an adventure that I always wanted to have. But just that excitement, that joy, that, that amped feeling kind of wanes over time That is a picture of the story of Calvary Of the story of the hill of Golgotha The cross that my Savior died on This is the cross and this is our experience with it That when we come to Christ When we finally realize what the cross represents to us What it actually means That Jesus Christ died for my sin In my place and in the moment of time where you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that moment, that day, is something that is exciting, it's rejuvenating. And can anybody relate to that? With the day you come to the Lord, there's something just special about it. But then life happens. Stuff occurs, events, calendars, and the story, the excitement, the, the being re- Born again, being redeemed Slowly loses its luster Over time things fade The cross loses its luster The empty tomb becomes a cold rock Over time The significance, the importance The surprise, the wonder The joy and the majesty of Calvary Fades But I want to change all that Because that should not be the case Because on the hill of Golgotha My Savior died for me and it says of him in hebrews chapter 12 that for the joy set before him endured the cross what i want to do today is for us to rejoice in the cross for us to have the mentality that jesus did that my savior died for me i hope that we adopt a fresh perspective because my savior saw an object of torture and led it and saw it as an object of joy but how did he do that How did Jesus look at the cross and say that that is joyful? How do we rejoice in the cross? That is my quest today. So if you don't have your Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 19, verses 17 through 37. Today I want to turn a stagnant pool into a river of life. And the question we are seeking to answer today is how can we rejoice in the cross? And today we really, we understand how we rejoice in the cross When we understand three important questions, what is the cross, what happened on the cross, and why is the cross important? Those are the three questions that we're going to unpack today. What is the cross, what happened on the cross, and why was the cross important? Where we pick up in our text today, John chapter 19, as you probably know, verses 1-16 through is really the story of Pontius Pilate, if you remember that from... John 18 and 19, Pontius Pilate is a Roman governor, and he finds himself in between a rock and a hard place in a no-win scenario. What does he find? He finds that Jesus is completely innocent of all charges. Why is that important? Because Jesus is without blemish. He is the Passover lamb to take away the sins of the world. Only one who is without blemish can truly pay for all sin. Pilate finds him to be without blame. He finds him to be without Sin whatsoever But then Pilate is stuck between a rock and a hard place He knows Jesus is innocent But he also cares for the opinions of the crowds And for his employer or Rome And he doesn't want to upset the crowd And cause another riot So instead he eventually forfeits He capitulates and he turns Jesus over To be crucified And that's where we are today What is the cross? The cross is more than a fashion statement First, if you have your notes, the cross is the culmination of human history. That at the cross, human history changed. The charting of time altered. Coupled with the empty tomb, the cross is the climax of our redemption. Number two, the cross is an object of supreme suffering. It was supreme torture that was perfected by Rome. Third, the cross is a sign of supreme devotion. Not only for Christ, not only was the the cross a sign of supreme devotion, that he would die for the Father's will to fulfill it perfectly and to die for our sin, but it's also a, a sign of our own supreme devotion. What does Jesus say? That all who come after me must, what? Deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow him. Forth the cross is described as the tree where my savior died. It was a, it was a simple wooden structure in the form of a T where thousands of died for their crimes but only one was nailed to the tree who wasn't a criminal but hung there for the crimes of mankind. How do we rejoice in the cross by seeing the cross as Jesus saw it? who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. To Christ, the cross was more than an object of suffering, but was the door to open redemption and eternal life to mankind. What actually happened on the cross? Question number two, what happened on the cross? Well, first, obvious, is that Jesus was crucified. And if you notice in your text, in John chapter 19, there's actually... Pretty little details of the actual event of Jesus being hung on the cross. There's, there's not much detail relayed in the process of the actual crucifixion. Notice what it says in John chapter 19, verses 16 through 18. So he then, Pilate, handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. Verse 17. They then took Jesus, the Roman soldiers, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull which is called the Hebrew of Golgotha. Notice here that John does not emphasize the, the, the process of being crucified. He doesn't emphasize as much as other gospel accounts of the journey that Jesus walked with the cross. It pretty much simply just says that Jesus was handed over to the Roman soldiers, and the Roman soldiers who were experts on crucifixion crucified him there on the hill of the skull. The cross, perhaps the cruelest of all executions... To be crucified meant to be hung naked beside a road on a hill for the whole city to see your shame and your blood and your suffering. And here Jesus is nailed to the cross on a hill beside a road for the whole city of Jerusalem to see. But let me take it a step further. What's what's really going on here? What, what, what feast is happening at this hour? It's the feast of Passover. Why is that significant? Because every Jew from all over the nation of Israel, where are they? They're in the city of Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. So Jesus is crucified when all of the nation of Israel is there to see it. He is up on a hill. Why? So that the world would see Him. He is naked. He is bleeding before all people. And what I find amazing about that is it says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. The whole nation of Israel sees him. Let me add to your picture of the crucifixion. One scholar describes the crucifixion as this. The punishment of crucifixion was invented to make death as painful as, ...and as lingering as the power of human endurance. The three crosses were laid on the ground first... then Jesus was stripped naked of all of his clothes... ...and then followed in the most awful moment of all. He was laid down upon the implement of torture. His arms stretched along the beams... ...and at the center of the open palms... ...the point of a huge iron nail was placed... ...which by the blow of a wooden mallet... ...was driven home into the wood... And then through his feet, another huge nail tore its way through the quivering flesh. That is the scene of the crucifixion. But I want you to notice verse 18. Notice who is with him. Therefore, the Roman soldiers, they crucified him. And what else? And with two men on either side and Jesus in between. What's going on here? That Jesus is crucified. He is laid down on the implement of torture. He has iron nails put into his hands and into his feet. He is naked. He is bleeding down the cross before all the nation of Israel. And who does he see beside him? He has a robber to his left and to his right. Now if you notice in your text it really doesn't describe who these men are. But when you actually take a step back and you see the other gospel accounts, you know who they are. These men are robbers. And who is supposed to be in the middle? If you remember that story in the Pontius Pilate Pilate, plan C, to release Jesus because he knows Jesus to be innocent. He calls this man named Barabbas before the nation of Israel. He says, choose which you would have to release. Either this man who is a murderer and a robber and insurrection is named Barabbas, or this man who is innocent who is your king. And who do they choose? They choose Barabbas, and Barabbas is set free. Think about Barabbas. 24 hours ago, he thought he was going to be there. He thought he was going to be in the middle on the hill of Calvary, and instead is this man named Joshua, literally in the original language, and this man named Jesus, who was hung in his place. And by world standards, Barabbas was a lucky man, but by spiritual standards, Barabbas is a picture of our redemption. We are Barabbas. We are Barabbas. We are guilty of sin. And because of that we are deserving of eternal death Being separated from a perfect and holy God But Christ took my place on the cross Shedding his blood as the spotless lamb Paying for my soul in full Reconciling me back to God the Father The only remedy The only payment sufficient To pay for my sin and its eternal consequences is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. What does it say in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22? And according to the law, one may also say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. What happened on the cross? We know what is the cross. What happened on the cross? Jesus was crucified. We know this. Dust it off. Look at it differently. Jesus was crucified. His hands and his feet were nailed. He was hanging there beside a road on a hill outside of the city of Jerusalem for the whole world to see. And he hung there to pay for my sins in full. What happened on the cross? Jesus was crucified. And number two, he was king, if you have your notes. He was king. Verse 19. Pilate's sarcasm and cynicism is coming out in verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. And it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in, notice that, Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. Why? So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate, in his frustration here, said, what I have written, I have written. Pilate's sarcasm and cynicism is on full display. Why do I say, Pilate's sarcasm is seen in the sign itself that a king, a king would die on a cross. Obviously, Pilate's probably a bit skeptical of this whole thing. But then notice Pilate's cynicism. What does it say in verse 19 through 23? His frustration with the nation of Israel. He says that Jesus, the Nazarene, is king of the Jews. And what do the Jews tell him? Just saying, can you erase that real quick out of Hebrew, Latin, and Greek? And can you put that, I am the king of the Jews? Paul says, no, I, I'm going to stick it to you on this one, okay? <laughs> Maybe some of us have done that. Uh, we shouldn't. But anyways, that's what Paul is doing. He's kind of just taking a little bit of a jab to the nation of Israel for causing them causing him to do what he didn't want to do. And notice with me, what three languages are the sign written in? Is the sign written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin? Why? Think about this time period in the world that pretty much the entire known world spoke and read those three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. In other words, what? That every single person whether Roman or Gentile or Greek, that passed along the hill of Golgotha would be able to read that sign and understand what it means. But Pilate's sarcasm and cynicism has is used by God to affirm a different message altogether. The sign reveals Pilate's inner workings, but it also reveals truth, that Jesus is king over all. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. What does it say in Philippians chapter 2, 9, 10, and 11? So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus now sits on the throne as king, and every single knee will bow, whether they are Hebrew, whether they are Greek, or whether they are Latin. That Jesus Christ has died for the sins of the world. That message has a deeper meaning, I believe, that God the Father has. That Jesus is not just king of the Jews, but he's king over all the world. What happened on the cross? Jesus was crucified. He was king and he was Messiah. We get the word Messiah, which is from the Hebrew word Meshua, which means the anointed one. The word Christ, also in the New Testament, is not Jesus' last name, but that is actually designating him as the Messiah himself. That he is the anointed one. 330 prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled in Christ's ministry. And all of those Old Testament prophecies that speak of Jesus as the Messiah prove that he is the one that is spoken of in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that he will bruise his heel on the head of the serpent. So wait, okay. So Jesus is crucified, was crucified, duh. Jesus was king, we see that in the sign. But what in the text, in John chapter 19, what proves that he is the Messiah, the one they've been looking for since the Garden of Eden? John chapter 19, verse 24. If you notice with me, what do the soldiers do? They divide Jesus' garments. And notice, Think about this. The Roman soldiers know nothing about the Old Testament. They know nothing about the prophecy that David wrote in Psalm chapter 19. They are rather instruments in the hands of a sovereign God at that particular moment in time to affirm that Jesus is not just king, but that he is the Messiah, the one they have been looking for since the beginning of time. Why do I say that? It, Psalm chapter 22 verse 18 says this, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. David, the King David, a thousand years before Jesus came on the scene, predicted in Psalm 22 verse 18 perfectly that the Messiah's clothes will be divided amongst themselves, and for the clothing they will cast lots. And these soldiers, who are experts in crucifixion, have no idea that they are instruments in the, in the hands of a sovereign God. I mean, think about John the Apostle. He is the one that is there. And it says in the original language that he was standing there. He's not just standing there. He's not, we, we picture John here, kind of like, okay, you have this big hill, okay, like, like airport road, that little hill you go over, okay. And they're like down at the bottom of the hill, John and the mother. No, that's not true at all. In the original language that John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, his mother, his mother's sister, they're right there. They're standing at the foot of the cross. They are mere feet away, which makes sense. When Jesus says, John, behold your mother. And think about John. If any doubt remained of who Jesus was, this surely sure it up. Because he is sitting there looking at these soldiers casting lots for the clothing of Jesus. And he says in the back of his mind, wait a second, I've seen that somewhere. That's in the scroll in the synagogue. I believe it's in the scroll of the Psalms. He sees the fulfillment of the Old Testament and it points to that Jesus truly is the Messiah. But then if you notice in John chapter 19, verse 29, there is another messianic prophecy fulfilled. Jesus is king, he is the Messiah. Notice what it says. It says they gave him sour wine or sour vinegar, fulfilling Psalm chapter 69, verse 21. And, And John is sitting there putting it all together, that if he had any doubt to this point... John had a particular idea of who the Messiah should be. And I'm sure John is kind of saying, wait a second, this, this Messiah is not really matching up. But I believe he truly is because of the casting of lots and because they gave him sour vinegar to drink. Psalm 69, verse 21. And notice in Psalm, excuse me, John chapter 19, verse 30, what does Jesus say on the cross? He exclaims, it is finished. And then he died. It is finished. Those three English words, man, I tell you, this is a cool, okay, cool Greek word, okay, behind the scenes. It is finished is really only one Greek verb. It is the Greek verb to telestai. It comes from the Greek word teleo, which means to be filled or be complete or to be fulfilled. And coupled with tetelestai, okay, super TMI, I'm about to get on all of you. Okay, so the tetelestai is a perfect tense verb. What does that mean? A perfect tense Greek verb is a past event with continuing ongoing results to the present. In other words, this—that all the Father has given to Jesus to fulfill, He has absolutely filled it to the brim. He has finished it. It is complete. That the Father's will, all the task He's given to the Son, it is totally finished. It is complete at that exact moment. Therefore, then Jesus dies. But there's some scholars, okay? Some scholars believe here that to tell us that the perfect tense, a past event with continual ongoing results, it is finished to the present time. All it is done. Some scholars believe that this is just referring to the atonement that our soul and our sin is paid in full. And it is. To that it is finished. It is referring to Jesus Christ's atoning work on the cross, that we are redeemed. Our soul is purchased by the blood of Christ. Amen. By his scourgings we are healed, but it's more than that. It is finished. What does it say in John chapter 5 verse 30? He, is, he only does things that, he does nothing on his own initiative, but only which the Father has given to him. I believe what Jesus is saying is not only is our soul paid in full, not only is he the spotless lamb to atone for the sins of the world, not only is our purchase made, but all the Father's will is complete. That all the Father has given to the Son is fulfilled. To tell us that it is finished. At the moment Jesus says, it is finished. He takes his last breath. Jesus fulfilled all the Father has asked of him to do. The perfection, the purpose, and the person of Christ is seen in one word. to telesty his person, he kept it perfectly. His purpose, he fulfilled it fully. And his perfection is without blemish. Uh, um, I could preach a whole... Uh, about a month on Telstai, it is finished. It is a past event with continuing ongoing results. All that the Father has given him before the foundations of the world is complete. Charles Ryrie adds this to the verb: "It is finished." Was written on common ancient receipts for taxes that is found on papyri paper. Written across them at the top was this single word, tetelestai, meaning paid in full. The price for our redemption from sin was paid in full by the Lord's death. How do we rejoice in the cross? By viewing it as Christ did, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. To to Christ the cross was the culmination of obedience. What happened on the cross? He was crucified, he is king, he is Messiah, and he is number four. He is the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29. But notice in John chapter 19, verse 31, it says this, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation. Let me pause on that real quick. So you have Jesus and the two robbers are crucified, and they had to die before sunset because the Sabbath started at sunset. So they set out to make sure that these three guys, one who was completely innocent of all charges, and the two who were guilty of sin were dead before sunset, so that the Sabbath would not be violated. Notice verse 31 again. So that the bodies would not remain on the cross for the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. asked Pilate that their legs be broken, that they might be taken away. Verse 32, so the soldiers came, broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Jesus here proves himself to be the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. But what about this proves it? What about, what, what about John chapter 19, verses 31 through 30? 30, what proves that he is the Passover lamb that pays for the sins of the world? Number one, Jesus' legs are not broken. Fulfilling Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, and Psalm 34, verse 20. The Passover lamb, which, was, which atoned on credit the sins of Israel, must be, according to the law, without blemish and without broken bone. Jesus' legs were not broken so that he could be, that he is the Passover lamb. Not one bone of his body was broken. As God has given to Israel in the Passover day, in the 10th plague of Egypt, when they were about to exodus, exit stage left in the nation of Egypt, they, God tells the nation of Israel to take a lamb without blemish, to, that a lamb without one broken bone, and to sacrifice it to atone for the sins of Israel. Roman crucifixion was horrible because as the body hung there on the cross in order to breathe people would push up with their legs and then take a deep breath but with their legs broken they suffocated under their own weight but Jesus was already dead he has been hanging on the cross for mere hours and not one bone of his was broken fulfilling Psalm 32 34 verse 20 But what else proves that Jesus is the Passover lamb? We skip over one part of this. And to be honest with you, I didn't see it initially. But what branch do they use to bring Jesus the sour wine and vinegar? Did you notice that? And if it wasn't significant, John would have just said a branch. But he says a branch of hyssop. What in the world is that? The night of Passover, back in Exodus chapter 12, God commands the nation of Israel to take a lamb without blemish, without one broken bone, to slaughter it, to atone for the sins of Israel, and then they were to take a branch of hyssop, dip it in the lamb's blood, and spread it over the doorposts of their homes, so that God would pass over them. Jesus is the Passover lamb and his blood was spread over the doorposts of our souls so that God the Father, our sins, would be atoned for, and he would pass over our sin previously, currently, and forever committed. Jesus is the Passover lamb, and it is confirmed in the text. We probably all have dusty blinds in our home. Maybe not. Maybe you're just... uh, Never mind. Okay, um, particular... What what do dusty blinds tell you? Tell you that that window has not been used in a while. That's our view of the cross. We get so used to the story that it just becomes that thing. It becomes this old, dusty story with little significance, but it is far from that. Our soul on the cross was purchased in full. Our Jesus is king, he is Messiah, and he is the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And it is confirmed in the text. This week I was in Panera Bread, and I prepared there. I moved up in the world from McDonald's to Panera Bread. Um, and it's much more expensive, by the way, than McDonald's. But, um, and I was sitting there in Panera Bread in my little booth, and I just started weeping in the middle of the restaurant. Um, I'm sure it was really strange, <laughs> okay, for people to see this grown man who is talking to no one, uh, crying and weeping at the story of the cross. But this, that, this should be all of us, that when we look at the cross, we should come to tears, seeing what my Savior endured, and that we should have joy. For the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. What is the cross? The cross is the culmination of human history. The cross is an object of supreme suffering. The cross is an object of, of supreme devotion. The cross is a tree where my Savior died. What happened on the cross? Jesus was crucified. He was Messiah. He was Passover lamb and He was King. How do we rejoice in the cross? By viewing it as Christ did. The cross is the fulfillment of the Father's will. It is finished to tell us that joy was before Jesus at the cross because it brought us back to the Father and fulfilled all of the Father's will. But why is the cross important? We've already talked about it a little bit. I'm just going to take a a, time out and do why is the cross important. The cross is important for at least four things. The cross is important. it a picture of depraved men, divine love the defeat of sin, and the delivery of eternal life. The cross is important because it proves that men are depraved. What do you mean? We are sinful, that we are inherently messed up because of the fall, amen? I mean, we have this thing in our culture that, that, that mankind is inherently good. <laughs> yeah, right, amen? We're all messed up. That's why we need Jesus, amen? If we're all perfect, we don't need him. We are sinful. And if you need evidence of that, there's plenty of it out there. Just look around you. The cross is evidence that men are completely and totally depraved. How else can you explain? Men saying crucify him, crucify him, despite all guilt is vanquished. Despite an innocent man. How could you deny the depravity of man that they would sacrifice an innocent man? How can you deny the depravity of man because we relegate the story of the cross to some dusty shelf in our mind? And this is, I'm not doing this, I'm doing this. The cross has just become that thing. Yeah, it's great. Guys, die for me. But it's so much more than that. The cross is important because it is a picture of depraved man and number two, divine love. Romans 5.8, But God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. First John 4.10, And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The cross proves our depravity. It proves God's divine love. It proves the defeat of sin. Romans 5, 9 and 10. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved in the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have reconciliation. Romans 8, 1-3 divine, divine love and the cross signals that sin is defeated. Romans 8, 1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. It is finished. The cross is the stamp of completion. That Jesus took on the sins of the world, that he died for us, and by his wounds we are healed. That by faith in Christ and in him alone through the blood of the Son, I am justified. Justified means, is a legal term, means to be declared innocent. And Christ paid for my sin and set all those who would believe in him as free from the chains of sin and death. Sin is defeated on the cross And we are set free from its chains. cross proves man's depravity. It proves God's divine love. It proves that sin is defeated. And it proves that eternity has been delivered. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us back to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That through the blood of Christ, eternal life has been delivered to those who believe. And what is eternal life? John 17 verse 3, I quote this one all the time since I preach it. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. That's why eternity will never be boring. It's because God is infinite and we are finite. We will spend eternity understanding Him. That because of the cross, eternal life is delivered to those who trust Him as Lord and Savior of your life. That because of Christ, we can have eternal life. Because of Christ, we are new creations. Because of Christ, we can be born again. Because of Christ, I am a child of God. I can be called beloved. I am set free from the chains of sin and death. Because of Christ, I could spend eternity discovering an infinite God. And because of Christ, I am reconciled back to the Father. That is the importance of the cross. And notice verse 35 in John 19. And he who has testified has seen, has testified, he's speaking of himself, John. And his testimony is true. And he who knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may also believe. John has assembled this passage. He has assembled the entire gospel of John for one purpose. What is it? Y'all, if y'all don't have this memorized yet, stuff it away. John twenty, verse thirty one. These things have been written, so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in him you may have life in his name. John chapter 19, verse 35, these things have been arranged that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in him, you may have life in his name. That's what he says. Jesus' arrest, why was that important? Because it proved his claims. The six trials of Jesus, the three before the Jewish nation, Honest Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, the first one before Pilate, Herod, and then the second one before Pilate. What is the importance of those six trials that proves that Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God, able to pay for the sins of the world? And why is the cross important? Because we have a picture of our brokenness. We have a picture of the divine love of God. We have a picture of the defeat of sin, and we have a picture of the delivery of eternal life. How can we rejoice in the cross? How can we take that dusty old story, the stale bread on the counter, that stagnant pool, and turn it into rivers of life by viewing the cross as Jesus viewed the cross? Christ, in his infinite nature, was able to look past the cross to see what it would accomplish. It is finished, the telesti. He saw that it would redeem mankind from their sin, that it would restore him back to the Father, that it would put upon his head the crown which every knee will bow under heaven and on earth. He looked past the cross and he saw the outcome of it and so then, therefore the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Let me just speak. We rejoice in the cross when we see the outcome of the cross. Because otherwise, if you don't see what happened, and my soul is bought, that I can have eternal life, if you don't see that, and you just see a cross, it's going to become stale. But see the outcome. View it as Christ saw the cross, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. The cross... Paid for our sin in full. My point today is how can we rejoice in the cross? We rejoice in the cross when we remember the outcome of the cross. The cross brings joy because love is proven, salvation is secure, and sin is defeated. The cross brings joy because love is proven, salvation is secure, and sin is defeated. The cross to my relationship with God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the cross to my relationship with God, to my relationship with other believers, and my relationship to non-believers, and even my relationship to myself. The cross to myself tells me that I am redeemed, that I am purchased in full. The cross to God tells me I am grateful for the sacrifice of his son, the cross, to other believers that we have a common bond of unity, and the cross to non-believers I have a message to share. I'm going to just pause and hold up. And okay. This is what I want to do this week. If you, there are post-it notes at the end of your pew. If you've grabbed those, I would encourage you to grab one and pass it down the aisle. So you don't have to do this exercise. It's cool. Like it's cool if you're asleep or something right now. It's cool. Um, but if uh, but I would encourage you to take take the posted notes. Everybody grab one. And, and this is what I would encourage you to do. And I'll give you a minute to grab one. There should be a pen right in front of you. If you don't have a pen, and there should be some in the back. I see Jason. Hi, Jason. Okay. This is what I want you to do with that post-it note. I want you to write these words. You don't have to do it. It's cool. Like, I don't, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Um, I want you to write these words. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. So I want you to write on that sheet of paper. Thank you for the cross. And this is what I want you to do with that little post-it note. I want you to take that post-it note and I want you to put it on the dashboard of your car. And every day that you get in your car, what I want you to do is I just want you to touch that post-it note and be thankful and rejoice in the cross. Because what happens on Friday, this week we celebrate Good Friday. What happens on Easter, we celebrate the empty tomb. Thank you for the cross. Before I close, I'm about to break every rule of seminary preaching that they told us to do. Um, They told us in seminary times uh, to end with a great funny story or something like that. and um, I'm just going to end by reading the scripture. And I'm going to read a passage that describes all of this. And this passage was written 500 years before Jesus was even born. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tendered shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. And he has no stately form or majesty that we would look upon him, nor appearance that he should be attracted. We should be attracted to him. For he was despised and forsaken of men, the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. Amen? All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that was led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, verse 9, and his grave was assigned with wicked men. And yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence. Does this all sound familiar? Does this not confirm to you the validity of the scripture? That 500 years before Christ stepped foot in the flesh, that this was predicted of his life and his fulfilled imperfection. I'm going to continue. But the Lord was pleased to crush him putting himself to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Amen pray with me Heavenly Father what a message of love Lord this is a dusty story to many of us this is a story that we've heard so many times and we hear and we sing about in songs but Lord it is far from a dusty old story but it is a river of life and you've given your blood to pay for my sin in full Lord I pray for those that do not have a relationship with you those who do not believe in you those who are just checking out Christianity those online that don't really know what to make of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them, that you would reveal your Son and your salvation to them, that you would open up the eyes of the blind and cause them to believe in your Son. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the cross. We rejoice in it because of the outcome that it had, that the Father's will was complete and our soul was purchased in full. Thank you. We rejoice in what you have done. Thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen.